and I cannot be free in America or anywhere else where there is capitalism and imperialism until, until, until we can get people to recognize that they themselves have to make the struggle and have to make the fight for freedom every day in the year, every year, until they win it. Thank you. Welcome to the third episode of How We Breathe. I'm Jennifer Tolles, national organizer and trainer at Bold, working alongside of a host of amazing organizers, like my comrade, Jonathan Stitt. Hopefully you'll get to hear from many of us over the life of this podcast. I'm so honored to be here with you all. This is where we share intimate conversations with the voices that don't often make it into the news. We explore how young leaders are building on the legacy of Black resistance while finding new political tactics to meet this moment. And we go intimate. We share the rituals, practices, and ancestors that have carried us forward, the dimensions of self-growth that are the seed of our collective transformation. Listen as we breathe. Today, we're going to the West Coast with our guest, Zach Norris, executive director and a veteran organizer with the Ella Baker Center. He's also a proud Oakland native. The Ella Baker Center is a model for those of us out here working on criminal justice. Zach has been working for 20 years to build relationships and successful strategies to dismantle California's oppressive incarceration systems and to empower youth and their families to restore a sense of justice and community safety. Zach and I spoke about the wins, the conflicts, releasing his book, and redefining the meaning of safety and fear. I live in East Oakland, uh, 94605 is the same zip code I grew up in and just happy to be here happy to be talking with y'all um, and I think that one of the things that keeps me grounded is this place um, recognizing that this is Ohlone territory um, and that this is a place that we've come to know as Oakland it's the birthplace of the Black Panther Party in terms of its iteration with Huey Newton, Bobby Seale. We moved to Oakland when I was a week old, and I say all the time, it was a week too late because I love Oakland just that much. Uh, moved from San Francisco, uh, and that's part of my shaping too. You know, having a white mother, a black father who you know couldn't have moved to San Leandro, which is a neighboring town south of Oakland, because they had a racially restrictive covenant well into the 1980s. So we found a home in East Oakland. It's been home for me ever since, and I'm shaped by the experience of you know black folks just kicking it at the lake. I think people probably would have heard of Barbecue Becky and some of the more recent iterations of white folks saying, this is not your place. But I remember as a teenager in the 1990s being at Festival at the Lake and just 
kicking it and have a good time and and then that being criminalized and you know going to school from 1991 to 1995 where the number of youth crime stories was just exploding in the media even though youth crime was declining and they were saying that it was because there was going to be an explosion of the number of black and brown young people that shaped me as well in terms of who I am and how I understand the world and and what I believe is necessary in terms of freedom and liberation for black people and for all people. So I was at Harvard as an undergrad. I found myself at Harvard and I found myself in a lot of culture shock because I grew up in Oakland. It was cold as hell at Harvard. Um, I wanted to go home. I thought about transferring. And at the same time, my mother has started teaching in public schools. She didn't have like basic supplies, like paper towels in her kindergarten classroom. My dad had gotten laid off. And all of this was happening in undergrad where I was seeing young people using and abusing drugs and getting into fights. And at Harvard, you know, they got the time off that they needed. They got support. And I saw a lot of my friends and family coming out of incarcerated settings or still being in incarcerated settings for for engaging in similar behaviors. You know, like being a light-skinned African-American, cisgendered male, like I have a number of privileges and going to Catholic school that made it such that some of these things were eye-opening for me as as an undergrad in college where, you know, other folks probably had earlier experiences of structural racism. And so, you know, I went to law school not knowing what the hell I wanted to do. Thankfully, Jesse Fernandez, who I went to undergrad with, was like, you should check out this organization called the Ella Baker Center. I went there as a law school student intern, and we were engaged in a campaign to defeat what would have been the largest per capita juvenile hall in the country from being built in, you know, the supposedly progressive Bay Area. And... I engaged in a civil disobedience uh, at a board of supervisor meeting at our county meeting and got sent to Santa Rita jail, Um, ended up spending the night in jail and was profoundly disturbed by just how normal the experience of incarceration was for my peers, was housed with basically only other black folks. That was the night that really changed my life in terms of understanding who I am. I started after law school working as an organizer, got hired as an organizer to organize families of incarcerated youth. And we were working to close youth prisons um, across the state. So that's really what kind of led me to this work and been involved and engaged in it ever since. Zach draws personal inspiration and organizing lessons from Ella Baker, the powerful strategist and visionary advocate for human rights for whom the center is named. She was a force of nature. 35 years after her death, the legacy she left us remains a beacon across movements. Ella Baker is a brilliant Black woman, a leader in decades upon decades of struggle for freedom 
She was an internationalist. She had an international vision of, of freedom. She had a vision that was undeterred by racism or patriarchy or classism. She really understood and believed in the power of everyday people to make change. And I feel like we try to build on her legacy by advancing what we call a books, not bars, jobs, not jails, healthcare and housing, not handcuffs agenda, because from our perspective, this country is oriented around death. And that is translated now into policy in terms of where we spend our resources on the military, on incarceration, on criminalization. Those things are recession proof. And over the past 34 years, all of the things that actually sustain life from healthcare to housing to education have been cut. And so we try to build and live into her legacy by affirming life, by affirming the life of Black people, by fighting for resources for our folks, by organizing in particular ways that we think actually reflect her ethos. And so we're working with mothers and grandmothers who have lost loved ones to state violence um, here in Oakland in the Bay Area. Shout out to Nifa and Angelo who are doing amazing work leading that program. You know, I'm just really inspired by the work that's happening because it's political education. It's a healing circle, but it's also then translating that towards action and moving the attorney general in the state of California, our local district attorney, our folks that we've been meeting with and are going to be meeting with to, to bring demands for justice for, for victims of violence. But one of the things that I was involved with is closing down youth prisons across the state of California. I remember Laura Brady, her son, got beat with a phone receiver. Each time she would go, it would be like, how am I going to find my son? And oftentimes, mothers wouldn't even be able to reach their children to see them because at the gate, they would say, well, you have on the wrong color pair of pants, so you can't visit today, or your son's or, or daughter's entire unit is on lockdown, so you can't visit today. Or even before that, they would check folks' tags even as they were driving into the youth prison. And if you had expired tags, they would call the local authorities and have folks arrested even before they got to the gate to try to visit. Folks would park a mile away in this dirt parking lot that was just sort of between two farms and then walk a mile because they were worried about getting flack for not having registration. And so a lot of my conversations with mothers and, and grandmothers were just like that mile walk, right? And so that was how I was organized. One of the things that I was organized into is being bold. And I appreciate Bold for that statement of we need to demand our freedom. Barbara Jackson and Alephister, Joyce Cook, they were doing that. They were saying, like, we need to close these youth prisons down. And I'll admit, even I was skeptical. There were folks on staff who were skeptical about whether we could do that. But we, we did what good organizers do. We got some T-shirts on the front. They said, close youth prisons. On the back, they said, open youth opportunities. And we just kept showing up with more and more folks until people got tired of seeing them damn t-shirts in the Capitol in Sacramento, right? We, you know, did our power map. We figured out who were going to be our allies. We, we got them to move legislation. Some of that didn't pass. We had legislation to outright close the youth prisons. That didn't pass right away. 
but we passed legislation to restrict the number of young people that could go in. And that started to reduce their numbers. And then they started to close one youth prison at a, at a time. And I'll never forget because like we would stand outside of these youth prisons and we would say the name of the youth prison, Heman G. Stark, shut it down. DeWitt Nelson, shut it down. And that chant went from aspirational to accomplish. Like, so some of those things then became past tense statements like Heman G. Stark. Yeah, we shut it down. DeWitt Nelson, we shut it down. Right. And just last year, the governor announced legislation to close the remaining three youth prisons that are state run youth prisons. And so we're phasing out of those state run youth prisons. And I want to shout out the California Alliance for Youth and Community Justice, Youth Justice Coalition, so many allies who helped move that final victory forward. And it's not the final victory, but it's a final step in terms of putting the an end to that California Youth Authority youth prison system. And now we're really working towards a zero youth incarceration agenda here in Alameda County and moving forward to make sure that the local government just doesn't do the same thing that the state government was doing. Zach's love for the place where he grew up gives him a unique appreciation for people power and its role in this current moment. This orientation, this appreciation helps to guide his path. My dad and I bought a house in 2005, um, and we almost lost our house to foreclosure. We got into one of these bad, you know, loans. And um, and it's funny because I was ready to give up on the house. And my dad was like, you fight for other people. You better fight for our house. And I was like, all right, dad. <laughs> Um, he was very clear. And so we, you know, started writing letters to the company. We started, you know, um, doing phone calls, um, lightweight. But what really did it was, or I thought did it was we had organized this little protest outside of Goldman Sachs, which owned the the company that was servicing our loan. But Goldman Sachs is in a hundred story building. There were like four of us at the bottom of this building. It was me, my partner. It was Robbie from Casa Husa Just Cause, and it was an intern. And we delivered our demand letter to the front of this building. It, it made it so far as a security guard who probably put it in the trash can. And we were leaving feeling deflated. I was having lunch with my partner, and we got a call from the person who identified himself as the vice president of Litton Loan Servicing Company. And he said, we've received your application for a Obama HAMP modification and we are going to move it forward and have a response to you by Tuesday. And mind you, I had always called them and they had always pretended like amnesia, like they had no idea what I was talking about and always was asking for a new set of documents. But what happened was that Matt Nelson and folks at Cause Who Should Just Cause had gotten his cell phone somehow. And folks, while we were having this very unsuccessful protest, folks were blowing up his line. And he was like, all right, this is enough. And so it really showed the power of organizing, like direct action gets the goods, organizing gets the goods. And we were able to save our, our home. But, you know, so many folks in my immediate family included lost their homes during that same period. It was the largest loss of black wealth in the history of the country. Um, and so it's just powerful to see 
um, folks taking that up uh, strongly. And I feel like at the Ella Baker Center, we're trying to act in solidarity. Those are just some of the examples, I think, from the the mundane, you know, and, and smaller to the people really taking bold action. Zach shared with us some moments of contradiction. Being in the world as it is, while working towards the world as we would have it be. I resonate with the challenge of embodying your values when you're angry or afraid. It's hard work. So one of the eye-opening moments for me, and I write about this in my book, Defund Fear, is when our house got broken into two times in the first year that that we had it. And the second time, whoever broke into the house and tried to initially break in through my daughter's bedroom. So I remember picking up glass, big giant shards of glass off my, my daughter's bed. And thankfully, we weren't home when this happened. All of my theories and thoughts and ideologies around uh, criminalization and criminal justice system really were tested in that moment. Like, okay, how am I going to tell this story to my kid? And I had to call some help. So I called Rita Alfred, um, who does restorative justice work, and she actually came to our house. And my kids were little, little, little back then, you know, and they were just toddlers, but she had them go through different drawing exercises around like how they wanted to keep the house safe and they didn't want people to come in. But she also talked about, you know, who might have broken into our house and what might have been what was motivating them, what was going on with them. Did they have a family as well? And so she just did this amazingly beautiful thing of, of helping us all to remember everybody's humanity in this situation. The police say you're the eyes and ears of the police. We say you have more than eyes and ears. We have hearts. We have hands. We have minds. We work together to keep each other safe. And these systems that have accelerated the morbidity and mortality of Black people have to go. And so that's kind of been my North Star is around redemption and and safety and freedom, which to me are intimately tied. That's why we call it Night Out for Safety and Liberation. And shout out to D'Angelo Bester, who helped come up with that name. Organizers and activists have been working with communities for decades. From the Black Panthers to folks like Essie Justice Group, Dignity and Power Now, just to name a few to not only dismantle the prison system, but to build and resource alternatives that restore and heal the communities caught within the web of the carceral system. Our criminal injustice system severs ties. It severs relationships. It puts one person on one side of the courtroom, the other person on the other side, and then, you know, is locking folks up in remote locations and worsening that punishment through isolation. And so our vision is the exact opposite of that. I think restorative justice, transformative justice is about actually not asking the question of just who did the harm, but how do we transform it? And what is each and everyone's role in that transformation, right? So it's not just like, oh, you're in the center of the circle and you did this thing, but it's actually everybody who is supporting the person who's caused harm, supporting the person who's been harmed. And they're all asking that same question of what could I have done to make this different? Right. 
And to me, safety and relationship is about understanding that we're interdependent, but also understanding that there are power relationships that we have to take into account. We've brought folks home. We've hired folks that we've been able to bring home. And now we've instituted this new inside outside fellowship where we're paying and supporting the work of one family member and one currently incarcerated person so that they can sort of amplify and and continue to move the work, but in a sustained and supportive way. It's obvious to me that we need a transformation. And I think that's what defunding the police speaks to. But I really wanted to stake a clear claim to the need to shift away from this framework of fear, as I call it in the book, to shift away from a death-oriented government. Zach knew that he had to share his vision for a more just and safe country. He received grants and other support to help him write a book. Zach debated over whether to change the title of the book to step into the tension over defunding the police. In the end, he did. Then, when it was time for the book tour, he had to step into a new, vulnerable, and even more visible space. You know, you deal with a lot of imposter syndrome. It was the first time I gave a book talk, and it was Latifah Simon, who I love dearly, and who's been a longtime leader in the Bay Area. She just acknowledged me when I got on the stage in a particular way, and my parents were there, and my family was there. And it was just one of those moments where it was hard not to just sort of bask in it. And she actually invited me to do that, which was a real appreciated invitation, just to see the people who had come to support me in my hometown of Oakland. And since then, like I still carry that feeling with me. My current commitment right now, as it's been bubbling up for me, is just around imperfection and being okay with things not being perfect and really uh, a commitment to like openness and uh, receiving things as they come. What I'm proud of is that some of my practices have started to stick a little bit more than they had in the past. You know, the journey towards greater vulnerability for me has been longer than I would like to admit. um, And I'm still on that journey, but I'm appreciative of bold for like showing the path. We have our good moments and our bad moments, but I just really appreciate the community that bold creates to be able to call on somebody and, and say, you know, this thing. This is one of the moments where I could use some support and I could use some guidance. Zach's love for home and for his people is infectious. We thank him for reminding us how leadership is formed through an accumulation of many moments and small acts. Thank you for listening. Black love. This podcast is a quarterly offering by Black Organizing for Leadership and Dignity, creating powerful spaces where organizers gather to experience embodied leadership, deeper relationships, resilience, and Black joy. You can find us on Instagram at WeBreatheBold. If you enjoy the show, 
make sure to leave us a comment and review. How We Breathe is written and produced by Niasha Lang and edited and produced by Eddie Hemphill.